Oh God, only you are worthy of praise. May your name be magnified here this morning. You have provided the power to us so that we can be death conquerors. You're resurrecting us even now as we speak. Because of your love, your great mercy, we have victory in the name of Jesus. Oh, you're worthy of praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with your glory. May our hearts now be open to your word. God, what you've laid on Lane's heart to preach and proclaim, may we surrender completely to it and follow you in obedience. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, worship team, as always. Great job for leading us and preparing our hearts uh, for moving into a time of worship through teaching and through studying God's Word. They always do a wonderful job, don't they? They do a great job. And, uh, yeah, we can clap. There you go. Well, has anyone ever experienced an interruption in life? Yeah, a few of us. Some of you, life, don't have the problem, but... If we're honest, yeah, life, we have interruptions in life. They can be good interruptions, and they can be bad interruptions. An example of a good interruption would be if you and your spouse are expecting and um, you are deep asleep at 2 a.m. in the morning, and all of a sudden the chaos of labor beginning wakes you up and you have to rush to the hospital, right? You, you were interrupted, but it was good. You, you're bringing new life and a uh, new child into the family, and so that's a good interruption. And then there's bad interruptions. Have you ever been, uh, maybe you were having an experience with a friend, or you were on a trip with a friend, and y'all had this uh, crazy thing happened to you, or something very funny happened, and it's a story that you just can't wait to tell. If you can't wait to get back to other friends or to your family, and so you get there, and you're, you're standing in front of people you know, and you're just ready to tell the story, so your friend nudges you and says, hey, tell them about that time. And so you get all excited, and you're going to make it the best story you've ever told, and you begin to tell it, and then every other word, your friend interrupts you and says, no, actually, what happened was, well, you missed this part, right, as if you were not even there. We have bad interruptions sometimes, and interruptions, they happen in life. And John, the gospel of John that we're studying right now, is telling a story of a great interruption, the greatest interruption that's ever been told in human history, and that's the interruption of Jesus. Right? He came to bring new life. He came to bring a new covenant. He came to bring a new kingdom. And this interruption is good for some, and bad for others. 
Because some receive Jesus' message. Some receive the truth and the life that he brings. And for them, it is life-changing, and it is a good interruption. But for others, it is bad because they reject him. They don't like his way and his teaching. And everywhere Jesus went, he was surrounded by division. And this morning, we're going to finish up chapter 7 of John. We're going to pick up in verse 37. And if you remember last week, Pastor Raymond talked about all of the chaos that surrounded Jesus in this chapter. There's chaos everywhere. And we're going to see Jesus actually heightens that with one statement that he makes. And we're going to see that there is division caused by Jesus, and it is still there. So if we were to summarize our time together this morning or these verses that we're going to look at, we could summarize it in one sentence. And that is that Jesus interrupts the greatest day of the feast with a great invitation that causes a great division. And though these events happened over 2,000 years ago, today Jesus is still interrupting lives. He has the same exact invitation that we're going to read. And it's causing people to still make a decision about what they believe. And Jesus today is still causing division. So as we go through and we read passages of Scripture and we talk about it, I want you to be asking yourself some questions. Just three questions. First, have I accepted this invitation? And then the second question is, what have I decided about Jesus? Who is he to me? And then the third question that I want you to think about and be able to answer is, does my life reflect my decision? Does what I do, who I am, how I live reflect my decision about who Jesus is? So let's jump in the water, if you will. And Okay, that, that was a pun. I know you don't get it yet, but in a few minutes you might start laughing. That's okay. But we're going to jump in at John chapter 7, verse 37. And we see in John 7, 37 that Jesus interrupts the last and greatest day of the feast. Now, the feast that they're talking about in chapter 7 is taking place, all of chapter 7, is the Feast of Tabernacles or Festival of Tabernacles. Or you could have in your translation the Festival of Boost or um, the Festival of Shelters or Feast of Shelters, depending on what you're reading. But in the history of Israel, there were seven feasts that they celebrated. And the important part of these feasts, the purpose of these feasts was to focus on the relationship between God and man. They set everything else aside, and for the time of whatever feast they were celebrating, they would focus on the connection between God and humans. And one of the feasts that they would celebrate happened weekly, every week, on the seventh day. Could anybody guess what that feast would be? There's a question I was asking. The Sabbath, yes. Exactly what we're doing today, right? They would come together weekly. They would focus on connecting with God. 
and they would worship, and they would rest. So that leaves six more feasts. We talked about one, and then there's six more. We won't go on them all today, but there's three feasts that happen in the springtime. And then there was three feasts that would happen in the fall. So we're going to talk about one of the feasts today, and your homework is to go home and learn about the other feasts that are remaining. But let's turn to Leviticus chapter 23. We're not going to miss this moment. We're going to get to go into Leviticus and learn a little bit about the Feast of Tabernacles. We're going to go to chapter 23, and we're going to look at verse 33, because it's very important to understand these verses, to understand some background of this festival. So Leviticus 23, verse 33, The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, the Lord's festival of tabernacle begins, and it lasts for seven days. So the Feast of Tabernacles took place on the seventh month, on the fifteenth day. Let's put that into our understanding of a calendar. Okay, the Jewish calendar, the first month was March to April time frame. That was the first month of their year. Seven months after that would be September, October. So Feast of Tabernacles is happening in the fall time. And so it would start on the 15th of October or September, and it would go to the 22nd. Okay, so it's a week-long festival. Let's jump down to Leviticus 23, 39. So beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of Sabbath rest, and the eighth day is also a day of Sabbath rest. On the first day, you will take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows, and other leafy trees. Rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come to celebrate it in the seventh month. Verse 42. Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters so your descendants will know that I, the Lord, had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I... And the Lord, your God. All right, so the Feast of Tabernacles took place around the harvest time. In the fall, they would harvest their crops, and that is the time that they would come together and they would celebrate. And it was a joyful experience. It was a very popular festival, so think about your favorite festival, whatever that is. And this was a festival that the Jews, the Israelites, loved to come to because a key word here is if we're looking at these verses again there's a key word that keeps reoccurring and that word is celebrate and so for seven days they celebrated with everything that they had there were trumpets there was singing there was dancing and waving the the leaves that they brought the branches that they would bring there's rejoicing there's citing scripture and it was a very well attended very joyful experience. It was well attended for really two reasons. One is because it was a lot of fun for them and a great time to celebrate and remember. And two, because if you were a Jew, you had to be there if you lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem. And so they would come to the city. 
And if we were to take a step into the city of Jerusalem at the time of this feast, what would we see? Well, you would see all over the city temporary shelters thrown up. They could be on the uh, rooftops of homes. They would be down in the alleys of the streets. They could be in the temple courts. I mean, everywhere you looked was a temporary shelter. And this temporary shelter was really like a lean-to. It had three sides and a roof. You had some branches that were woven through it, and you had fruit that would hang down from it that resembled God's provision. But the one thing that you had to have or make sure of in this temporary shelter is that you could see through the roof and you could see the sky above you. The reason for that is so that the Jews could remember the starry nights that they had in, during the Exodus whenever God was providing for them and leading them through out of their captivity in Egypt. And that God was with them the whole journey and how he provided for them. And so there would be these, these um, temporary shelters everywhere. Now, each day of the feast had a special celebration. And this celebration was called the water ceremony. And how the water ceremony would take place is you would have the high priest at the temple at the altar, and he would get a water pitcher. And he would take a water pitcher, and he would walk out of the temple, and he would walk down the stairs, and he would go to the pool of Siloam, which was not far away, but it was just a pool of water. And he would take the water pitcher, and all of the crowd would follow him. And he would take the water pitcher, and he would put it into the water, and he would fill it. And as he was filling up the pitcher, they would chant, or they would uh, sing praises. They would sing Isaiah 12, 3, which says, With joy you draw water from the well of salvation. And everyone would be saying this, and he's filling his pitcher. And as he fills his pitcher, he comes back to the temple. And as he's coming to the temple, he walks through what is called the water gate. And he has his pitcher, and everyone's following him, and they're singing praises. They would sing Psalm 113 or Psalm 118, God is our provision, and talking about the providing uh, nature of God. And they would get to the altar, and the priest would walk around the altar one time. And everyone is singing and celebrating. And then he would walk around the altar, and he would pour the water out. And this happened each day of the ceremony or the festival. But then the seventh day would come. The water celebration would come around, but it was a little bit different. He would still get the pitcher of water, the high priest, and he would still walk down the stairs, and he would go to the pool, and everyone would follow him, and they would quote Isaiah 12, 3, put the, uh, draw water from the wells of salvation, and they would fill up the pitcher, and then they would come back to the temple, everyone following and singing and praising God, and the priest would walk up the altar, and he'd walk up the steps, and going through the water gate, and he would get there to the altar, and he would walk around the altar seven times on the seventh day, just like the walls of Jericho. And as he walked around it, when he got to the seventh time, and he's about to pour the water out, the priest would take the water pitcher, and he would raise it as high as he could. And the crowd would go wild. This was the height of of the ceremony for them. And so he would have it raised. They would want him to raise it higher. And they're singing Psalm 113. And they're, again, celebrating who God is. And then as he could get it as high as he could go, and it was loud, he would begin to pour the water. And as he began to pour, it got quiet. 
and everyone would observe, observe the water being poured out as part of the celebration. Let's go back to John chapter 37. John chapter 37, it says, On the last and greatest day of the festival, so on the seventh day of this Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And so just as the priest was at the greatest moment of this ceremony, and he has the water pitcher up, and he begins to pour, and everyone gets quiet, there's someone that stands up in the back corner that says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. See, Jesus interrupted the greatest day of the feast with a great invitation. And as you can imagine, if we were sitting in that room or in that crowd and it's quiet and all of a sudden someone stands up and yells, all of our heads are going to go, who's that? Right, who just said that? And I can picture the priest is here pouring the water out and he's, where did that noise come from? And he's completely missing his bowl and it's just like running everywhere. This was a great interruption from Jesus. If you're thirsty, you come to me. And drink. Have you ever been thirsty in your life before? Yeah, all right. Parents, get your kids plenty of water. Be sure it is coming to summertime and they need it. We've all been thirsty, all right. I can remember one time where I was really thirsty. I never knew what thirst was until this day. To be exact, it was like July 20, the 20 something. And one of my part time jobs in college, I worked for an air conditioning company. And I enjoyed the HVAC field, but it was and so July 20th, you can imagine being in southeast Texas, and my boss prepared me for it. He's like, tomorrow we have this big job. It's a change out, which means you have to take out the air handling unit and the condensing unit and put a whole new one in, okay? The, the people that you were doing it for were going to greatly enjoy the cold air, but you were going to be dying the whole time that you're doing it for them. And so we were going to get there early and start this job. Now, if you're lucky, whenever you're doing a changing out an air conditioning unit and you're doing the inside unit, you will be able to walk to a closet and open the door. And there's a unit. The next best thing is if it's in the attic, but it's right at the access. That's acceptable because you can get down and up, you can feel cold air. The worst thing is when you open the attic door and you cannot find the unit because it is way on the other side of the house and you can't see it. Well, long story short, we get in there, and it was hot. I think in the attic, it was 120 to 130 degrees. My boss was a champ, and you're soldering lines, and it's hot. I was in there for like 10 minutes, and I was like, I got to go get some water. I was drenched with sweat. We had a whole five-gallon, you know, igloo cooler of water. My day was spent by that thing. I drank, I drank it dry. I would go back up, and then I would just cramp. Then I have to go right back down. I mean, it was miserable. That day, I knew what thirst was. The Jews that heard what Jesus said knew exactly what it meant to be thirsty. See, the water celebration that took place at the Feast of Tabernacles wasn't just something they cooked up to make everyone excited and it gets everyone just pumping and cheering and it's a great moment. It had meaning. See, the Jews knew what it meant to be thirsty physically and spiritually. 
So one of the things that they would pray for during the water ceremony was rain. Because it was at harvest time. If you want to harvest, you've got to have rain. And they lived in the Middle East. They lived in Israel. So it's hot and it's dry. Water's scarce. And so you prayed for rain. They also couldn't just go to their vehicle when they're on the job site and get as much cold water as they want. They had to go out to a well, draw water every day. You know, it was a process, and so they knew physical thirst. They also knew what it meant to be thirsty spiritually. Because while they would pray for rain during the water ceremony and pouring out, they were also praying for the Messiah to come. They were praying for the Spirit to come dwell with them. All throughout Scripture, there's a theme called the water of life. And what the water means in the Bible is life. It's exactly what it provides. If there is no water, there's no life. And if you are thirsty, you're dying. And so what Jesus essentially stood up and said is, hey, I am the Messiah. I am he. I am the one that this celebration is all about. You don't need to do this anymore. You can come straight to me, just as you are, and drink. And just as he told the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he would go on to say, if you drink from me, you will have rivers of water, living water, flowing from within you. See, Jesus does more than satisfy our thirst He makes us overflow with living water. Growing up, I lived next to a creek that lived up to its name. I loved it during the summertime. My friends would love to come over, and we would go down there and have our fishing poles, and we would fish as long as my mom would let us, and she did not like this creek. And now I understand why. Every time I drive by it, I'm like, man, how did I fish out of there? But the creek was stagnant. There was no water that flew through it. There was no current. It was black, hence its name Black Creek. And there was a film of moss that would be like on the top of it, and so you'd cast your line, and your line just goes, (laughs) didn't really sink down. See, when God calls us to drink from him, he doesn't want us to be stagnant bodies of water. He's calling us to flow like rivers, like a mountain stream that is cool, that is clear, that has a current, that has a direction that it is going, and that everything that it touches, it brings life to. That is God's invitation for us. That is God's uh, purpose for us. He doesn't call us to come drink for him, and then you're just stagnant. No, you have a purpose. You have a meaning. And when you come to Christ, you are no longer in need. There is no longer a thirst. There's not a longing. You are fully satisfied is essentially what Jesus is saying. You drink from me, you will be so satisfied. And this satisfaction and fullness cannot be contained. But instead, it flows out of us and impacts the life of the people around us. That is God's desire. That is God's call in our life. 
And those who respond in repentance to the death, the burial, and the resurrection, who drink from Jesus, that sounds kind of weird for us to hear that. We hear, hey, come drink from me. We're like, what does that mean, right? Well, all that really means is believe in me. Put your faith and your trust in me. And when we do that, the Spirit dwells in us, and we have an abundant, overflowing life. That's what John uh, 7, 39 talks about, is the Spirit will come into you. But as you could imagine, this great invitation that Jesus stood up and gave at just the right moment to strike a chord with everyone caused a great division. Let's look at that. Let's look, look at verses 40 through 42. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he's the Messiah. And still others asked, how can the Messiah be from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah is going to come from David's descendant and be from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? And we can see in these verses there's four type of people, four groups that are surrounding Jesus in this moment. You have the confused, the certain, the doubters, and the deniers. First, you see the confused, and after hearing Jesus' invitation, they thought that this man for sure is a prophet. Now, to give them a little bit of credit, a prophet is someone that is sent by God that has a message. So they were understanding that, look, Jesus is from God, but they didn't fully grasp the fullness of who Christ was and who was in the temple courts with them that day. And then you had the certain Upon hearing Jesus, they said, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. And they received the invitation, and they came to Jesus, and they drank from his well. And then you have the doubters. They saw Jesus as just the man. They began to raise questions about him. Where is he from? He's from Galilee. The Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. Who's his father? His father's supposed to, be, he's supposed to be from the line of David. And so to them, this man from Galilee being the Messiah made no sense. How could this be? And they failed to look into the details of Jesus' life. And instead, they just raised questions up and hoping and never searched for the answer. And if we were to look at the Scripture, the Scripture actually tells us the answer to their two questions because Jesus met both of those qualifications. He was from Bethlehem, and he was from the lineage of David. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. Now, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. You are to call him Jesus, and he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. There's the answers to their questions right there. And to their credit, these are valid questions, trying to understand their, the Messiah. But their desire to have unbelief was far greater than their desire to have faith. And there was the doubters. They surrounded themselves with questions without trying to find answers. And then you had the deniers. 
Now, these were the chief priests and the Pharisees. And uh, if we're to continue reading the rest of John, so what happened is the Pharisees heard of Jesus and what he stood up and said. And so they sent out temple guards to go arrest Jesus. And the temple guards got to Jesus and they heard him teaching. And they're like, oh, no one has ever taught like this man before. He's a little different. And so God, Jesus, interrupted their plans to arrest them. So they go back to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are like, hey, where's Jesus? They're like, man, no one's ever taught like him before. He's a little bit different. And upon hearing that, they, was, they began to say, are you deceived like the rest of the people? In other words, are you that incompetent to understand, not understand who this guy is? You're just like the mob or the people who don't know the scriptures. And the Pharisees saw themselves as a religious elite. And if anyone was going to know that the Messiah was standing right in front of them, it would be them pointing the way. And so in the middle of this debate between the the guards of the temple and between the Pharisees, there's a man named Nicodemus that stands up. If you go back to John chapter 3, he's the one that had the encounter with Jesus at night. And so we see here him beginning to stand for Christ and begin to really think about who Jesus is and form a relationship. And he says, we can't judge a man until we really hear him out. And the Pharisees upset at that, they go, what, are you from Galilee too? Because there is no prophet that could ever come from Galilee. And this statement right here exposed the deniers. Because there's actually three prophets that came from Galilee. Jonah, Nahum, and then many scholars believe that Hosea as well came from Galilee. Now, was it a lack of knowledge of the Pharisees or a lack of a desire to believe in Jesus? Whatever the case was, they were throwing up walls, denying the fact. And the funny thing is, is they told Nicodemus to look into it and you will see that he's not the Messiah when they they themselves were not investigating any further and Jesus knew that there would be division that was surrounding him he said in the gospels that I didn't come to bring peace actually I came to bring division now Jesus' goal wasn't to really bring division he brought truth and he brought life he brought a message that brings hope but our sinful hearts don't receive that message which require, or, uh, makes division take place so we have to ask ourselves the question of what side of the fence are we on You know, there's the doubters and deniers. They raise questions about the Messiah, telling the people to look at the evidence, but they were the ones that needed to look closer into Christ. And they would have seen who he is. And John 7 ends very interestingly after all of this debate and chaos that Jesus caused. If we were to look at John 7, verse 53, it says, Then they all went home. That's a great reminder for us this morning that we're here, but we are all going to go home. We're going to go back to work. You're going to go back to family, being grandparents, being parents. And we have to make a decision of where we stand with Christ. You know, a lot of times when we're thirsty, research has showed us that we think we actually need something else. 
lot of times when we're thirsty, we think that we're hungry. So we go to the pantry and we grab our favorite snack and we try and fill fill ourselves with that, but we're never satisfied until you get the glass of water that your body's really needing. We're all dying in need of a Savior. One of the Pharisees' faults was that they thought that they were better than everyone else. But we're all the same. There's no one any different than anyone else, and without Jesus... Our souls are a drought. And there is no life and no water flowing. But the great news is, is that we can come and we can accept the invitation to drink. Which simply means put your faith, your trust in Him. He's the way, He's the truth, and He is the life. All of the evidence points to that. And does our life represent what we decide about Jesus? Let's pray. God, we love you and we are so thankful for your grace. And we're thankful, Father, for your mercy toward us and your great invitation for us to come and drink. God, if there's anyone here today that feels like their soul is in a drought, that they they will come to you, they will surrender to you and accept the salvation and the life that you bring. Lord, for us that have accepted that, I pray, Father, that we see that there's division around us and it's tempting sometimes to throw up questions or throw up things that hide us from our faith or don't make us have to stand bold in our faith. But God, when there's division, that we stand firm for Jesus. We are the ones that are certain that say, yes, he is the Messiah. We love you and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll stand together.
great 